Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And uh, I'm just so very thankful to have a pastor who not only desires to preach the Word of God, but live it out before us. And also, Doug, you lied. You literally did what every preacher has done for, from the beginning of time, is you said, I have three points for you this morning. So whatever you just did, I'm pretty sure that was preaching. Um, but you can call it what you want. This morning, we're going to finish Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 13. And I have um, five short observations for us this morning. I'm kind of going to skip just right into the text. Um, but what I'd like to do is I would like to shape our time around a question. And it's this, how has experiencing God's grace compelled you? How has experiencing God's grace compelled you? And so if you would look at Isaiah chapter 6 with me, starting in verse 8. Here Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land in a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is filled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, thank you, Lord, for this day that you have given us. Thank you that you have ordained this day from eternity past. And for that very reason, Father, I pray that we would not forsake what it is you would do for us and through us this morning. We pray that you would allow us to orient our hearts and our minds to your word, that you might have us understand what it is you're calling us to. And Father, we pray boldly that if there are any unbelievers in our midst this morning, that you would be pleased to save them, that they would hear maybe for the very first time the gospel truth and turn from their sin and trust in you. And we pray all of this to your glory and to the exaltation of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so I have five observations for us this morning. The first is this, God's saving grace creates a heart that desires God's glory. So last week when we began Isaiah chapter 6, we had this scene of Isaiah being taken up in a vision into the throne room in the midst of God's glory. And there's a moment where he realizes, I probably shouldn't be in this place, and he's terrified. Well, as the terror is going through his body, raging through his bones, something amazing happens, and the Lord is pleased to forgive him of his sins and take them away from him. Now, there's more to the story. 
we, we have this moment where Isaiah, having just confronted the glory of God and experiencing that glory and God's saving grace, something else happens. In, in verse chapter 8, we see Isaiah transition. And so I think it's truly a testament to the grace of God how quickly Isaiah goes from crying out, I am lost, to here I am. I think what's happening is Isaiah has just had this moment of experience of God's saving grace in the taking away of his sins. He, he knows what it means to be lost. He knows the peril of being a sinner in the glory of God. He knows intimately the weight of his sin, but now in verse 8, he has the experience of what it means to be truly free. And so God's mercy has so radically changed Isaiah that where he once feared for his life, that God would take his life because of the sin which he brought into the throne room, he now turns around and offers his life to God. He's no longer afraid that God will take it. He's really much more concerned that God will receive it. And so he realizes that the purpose of his entire life is to glorify God. I mean, if you think about it, he's still in this vision of the throne room, and he sees the seraphim crying out, holy, 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 and he looks at them, and he's thinking, man, if these, um, like, whatever they are with their six wings floating, you remember nasty feet covering those, their faces are probably weird too because they cover those, and they also fly. If the purpose of their life is to glorify God, then it must be true that the purpose of my life is to glorify God. And not just with bits and pieces of it, with all of it. And so what is this awesome task that he has given? I, I don't know, if you're like me, you have probably been in a church, maybe it's missions week or a missions conference, and you see Isaiah chapter six, verse eight, here I am, send me. Okay, well, what is the awesome task? Right, you've seen it maybe written or plastered on a church wall. What is this awesome task that he has been given? Well, I wanna start with this. We definitely want to see Isaiah's zeal as an example we should strive for. We do want to see Isaiah and his willingness to say, here I am, God, send me, as something that we as believers certainly should strive towards. But in striving towards that level of zeal, we must not forget the gravity of what is actually being asked here. You see, I think some of the reason that we use this verse in the way that we do is because we want people to be willing to go. But the gravity of this situation is not in Isaiah's willingness to go, it's in the message that he's to take. And so this is observation number two, the message of saving grace, it softens hearts and it hardens hearts. So as we move into verses nine and 10, and even into 11 and 12, I, I will like level with you. It can be a little bit confusing as to what God is actually asking of Isaiah. Uh, the question has to be asked, is God saying that he doesn't want to save these people? Is that what's happening? Is this the God that we serve and honor? A God who is literally unwilling to save someone? Well, I want to be sure that we don't isolate chapter six from the rest of the entire book. Because if we isolate chapter 6 from the rest of this book, there are 66 chapters, then we're going to misunderstand what God actually desires in this moment and what he's actually asking of Isaiah himself. Turn to chapter 1 with me. 
So in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, God says this to Isaiah and to the people. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And in verse 27 through 28, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But the rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. When we see Isaiah receiving this commission from God, what we have to understand is God is not in this moment saying that he's unwilling to forgive or that he's unwilling to save sinners, but rather he is making an indictment on sin. He, he's, he's being very clear here to Isaiah. You are going to spend your entire ministry preaching a message that will fortify calloused hearts. Your message that I'm going to give to you to take to these people will fortify their calloused hearts. Turn with me to John chapter 12, because this is not the first time and it's certainly not the last time that we understand that the message of God's grace is one that softens hearts and yet also hardens hearts. John chapter 12, verse 36 through 43. Uh, this, is, this is Jesus really just having talked about his ascension into heaven. And he says, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. That is the people he was speaking to. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him being God. Nevertheless, many, even in the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What God is telling Isaiah in taking this message of his grace and his mercy and his willingness to forgive, if you will repent, Judah, I will receive you, what God is saying is there will be many, almost all, who choose not my glory, but theirs. And when we choose our glory over the glory of God, we are indicting ourselves. It is not our repentance, it is not our remorse, it's not our humility that speaks for us. It's our desire for our own glory above everything else that speaks. You know, I think one of the great misconceptions of the modern church is that a successful ministry will always yield successful results, right? Where there are numbers and influence increasing, so does success 
the success of the ministry, right? I mean, I just came back from the Southern Baptist Convention with the other pastors. I don't know. It's not actually been that recent, but recent enough to where it feels like it was yesterday, or maybe it just felt like it was yesterday. However, one of the things we talk about is increased baptisms, increased attendance. And, and listen, I want to be clear, while all of those things are sources of praise and glory to God, we have to be careful that an increase in influence and an increase in numbers and size is not what we consider success. Why do we say that? I think it's because here in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's telling us through his commissioning that success isn't even a metric that God is concerned with. The concern here is not success because that's the wrong word altogether. The concern here in terms of Isaiah's commissioning to go to the people of Judah with this message that God has given him, for Isaiah, he doesn't look at it in terms of success. He looks at it in terms of faithfulness. He doesn't need a successful ministry. He needs a faithful one because Isaiah understands that it's not about his glory. It's about the glory of God. And in fact, it's so much so that God calls this man to go and preach for the rest of his life and see little to no metric of success. And so I think Isaiah's life and ministry, it shows us the beauty of faithfulness. That as we faithfully strive for God's glory over our own in ministry, our hearts grow to desire what God desires. We don't desire to have large churches. We don't desire to have YouTube channels where everyone's watching us, not actually preach anyways. What we end up desiring is being faithful with what God has given us to care for and to steward, where it is, what it is, and that's it. And you don't have to be a pastor to feel the weight of this passage. I mean, the question remains, what is it that God has given you, your level of influence, whatever the size, that you are not tending to? What is it that you are looking for that you think would make you more effective for God's glory if you just had a little more? Well, I want to tell you that unless God gives it to you, then the answer is nothing that you don't already have. So the third observation is this. God's saving grace creates a heart that's compassionate towards the lost. So Isaiah's response here in the first half of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 11, it's pretty straightforward. He, he's basically saying, okay, how long do I have to do this? Right, because let's like replay for just a moment. All right, we need someone to go for us. Isaiah has just had this great experience. Here I am, send me. All right, God's like, okay, Isaiah, I want you to go and I want you to be completely unsuccessful in the eyes of the world. Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. Hmm. All right. I'm, I hear you. I hear you. The next thing is not, here I am, God. Send me. Here I go. It's okay. So how long? 
Just, just so we're clear, I mean, I'm not concerned. I would, just, I would just like to know a general timeline of this mission. Like a day, two days. But here's the thing. I, I think that's certainly true. I think Isaiah is definitely wondering, oh, wow, I, maybe I spoke too soon. <laughs> but again, if all we have is Isaiah chapter 6, then we can assume that Isaiah is somewhat bummed about this. And maybe he is. But the fact remains, we have 60 more chapters after this. There's more to the book of Isaiah than, so how long do I have to do this? You see, again, Isaiah has experienced what it is to have your sins taken away. Nothing from Isaiah chapter 1 to Isaiah chapter 66 can be understood rightly without the understanding of Isaiah personally knowing what it is to have your sins taken away. What it is to step into the glory of God as a sinner in your filth and be forgiven. Everything in his life would be understood in that context. And so for the next 60 years, years of his life, he is going to plead with his people to confess their sin and turn to God. Why do we say that experiencing God's saving grace creates a compassionate heart for the lost? Because Isaiah, every day in his life, in one way or another, grew to love the people he was called to preach condemnation to. And for 60 years, he never ceased to preach that message. Y'all realize that the man did this for 60 years, knowing what the outcome would be? Can I confess to you that every time I step into the pulpit, I at least hope that the Lord will do something through his word? I, I at least, like you probably pray, God, use this word to draw an unrepentant sinner to yourself. But I will be honest with you, I don't know that I would have 60 years in me to get up into this pulpit and stand and preach knowing that there would be little to no effect. And yet, Isaiah desires God's glory more than his. Look at Isaiah chapter 64. Towards the end of his, his prophetic ministry, let's see what he has to say. Isaiah chapter 64, verses 5 through 9. The second half of uh, verse 5 there. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall, be, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, and you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. For 60 years of Isaiah's life, grace 
compelled him. For 60 years, the moment still rings true in Isaiah's mind that the most amazing thing that he had ever experienced was to stand before a holy God as a sinner and to have his sin taken away. And it changed the course of his life. He was willing to do things that most of us would not even imagine. But this does beg the question that I think we need to ask ourselves, what has our own experience of God's grace compelled us to do? Think about it. Who are the people in your life that you are harboring resentment over because of their, their sin? Maybe even their sin against you personally. Isaiah spent his entire life being rejected. And again, he never stopped preaching the word of God. I believe what Isaiah would tell us as he understands it from seeing and experiencing God's glory to being commissioned to go to the people of Judah, even into their captivity, I think he would say this, that when you have experienced the grace of God for yourself, that is saving grace, then seeing people around you living in sin should drive all the more your desire for them to experience grace too. That looking around at, at people who are carrying themselves the burdens of their sin, not knowing the peril of their state before a holy, perfect God, that should drive us to be compassionate. It should drive us to desire and long for grace to be experienced in their life. Because we know, like Isaiah, that standing before a holy, perfect God in our sin leaves us with two possible outcomes. One of those is the forgiveness and taking away of our sin. The other is not. But like Isaiah, we, we must remember that we are not savers, saviors. We are proclaimers. That must have been the greatest news for Isaiah in this 60-year-long mission, is that he's not responsible for saving anyone. He's responsible to take the word of God from God to the people. You see, an important part of this message that I think we often can be tempted to overlook is that the message of God's saving grace is not just that God is gracious, but also that he is just. The fourth observation is this, the message of saving grace is never devoid of God's judgment. Last week, we ended our time with a really, really important question. Okay, so God, through the seraphim and a coal and an altar that exists somewhere in this throne room, touches the lips of Isaiah's mouth and he is declared clean. His sins are taken away. And we ask the question, okay, well, if they were taken, where did they go? Well, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 that they were placed on the man of sorrows, right? He was crushed for our iniquities. 
He was pierced for our transgressions. And so when they were taken away, they weren't magically like, it wasn't like all of his sins were on an Etch-A-Sketch and God's like, all right, good to go. That's not what happened. There was justice served. There was grace given. But the question that remains this morning that's just as important as that one is this. What happens if they're not taken away? What happens if our sins are not taken away? This very day, if you are living in unrepentant sin, what happens if your sins are not taken away? Understanding the exchange that takes place regarding sin is absolutely crucial. Because if our sins are not taken away, then they remain ours. And their penalty remains ours. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. Paul here has just been speaking about receiving the ministry of reconciliation. That is essentially being a minister of the gospel to the people of Corinth here. And he says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Isaiah experienced here in the throne room is what we call imputation. That is, his sins were taken away and they were placed on who would eventually be the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the man of sorrows, the one pierced and crushed for those who would trust and believe. But there's another side of imputation, and that is, our sins don't merely go to Jesus, also his righteousness comes to us. You see, without faith, without turning from our sin, without desiring God's glory more than ours, without trusting that this is who God is and this is what he's done, and for us as the New Testament church that he has given Jesus Christ, that we might trust in him and be forgiven of our sin, then there is no imputation either way. Our sins are ours, and Christ's righteousness is His. And if you die in that state, then the piercing and the crushing is yours. It's not Jesus's, not for you. And so God's word to Isaiah is very clear here. Unless they turn from their sin, their sin will destroy them. And this is exactly what happens in the book of Isaiah. But our fifth observation is this. God's plan to save sinners always succeeds. You see, right before verse 13, 
or excuse me, in verse 13, 12 and 13, God's judgment against Judah's rebellion is said to be so comprehensive that it's likened to the clearing of a forest and a burning of the stumps. God is telling Isaiah, they will reject me so hard that ultimately they will be destroyed. The forest of Judah will be cut down. And if anything does remain, we'll go through and we'll burn down the stumps. Total annihilation. Not because I'm a mean, wicked God, but because this is what they have chosen for themselves. I've sent you with a message to go to them, yes, of judgment and condemnation of sin, but also with the opportunity to turn. And by the way, Isaiah's two sons, they, they did trust in God. And so there, there were certainly moments when Isaiah had glimmers of hope for his people. But by and large, the forest is cut down. There, there is no hope in terms of this message. And this judgment, you know, we talked last Sunday about Assyria, Tiglath, Pileser III, he was coming through, he was making campaigns politically, militarily, his economic policies were phenomenal, and he was just coming through and, and taking over everything. And so we kind of expect Assyria to be the one who comes in, and Isaiah here in chapter 11 in particular mentions that for a moment, but it actually ends up being Babylon who finally takes Judah into captivity. And if you want to know what that was like, you can go to Psalm 137 and you can read about the tears from the people of Judah as they sat beside the rivers of Babylon and wept because their captives would, would jeer and mock them and ask them to sing songs from their homeland, knowing that they would never return, that many of these people would die in captivity. But even in Judah's darkest moment, God will refuse to forget his promises. He will actually once again deliver his people from captivity. If this morning you are thinking or tempted to think, I'm, I'm just too calloused over. I hear what you're saying. I don't believe in this God, but I hear you. I want to tell you, if you can hear what I'm saying this morning, that God can deliver you from the captivity of your sin and yourself. It's what God has always done for his people. It's what he did for his people when they were in Egypt and as we understand the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we understand that it's what, is, what God is going to do for his people now. He's going to bring something so severe in their life, and many of them will be judged rightly, but many of them will be broken to the very point where they feel as if they can't go on, and that's exactly the moment God will use in their life to turn them from themselves and trust in God. It's by the rivers of Babylon in puddles of tears that God will show his people that they actually do need him.
And in the very darkest moment, God will be there to receive them. He's not going to forget his promises, and he will deliver his people. You know, Isaiah tells us later in Isaiah chapter 61 what this deliverance looks like. What, what, what does it mean? Well, Isaiah tells us there that God will give liberty to the captives. He's going to give liberty to the captives. But what Isaiah could not have possibly imagined is that that truth is actually greater than anyone could have ever imagined or understood. Look with me in Luke chapter 4. starting in verse 16, and this is speaking of Jesus. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, this is Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And in the eyes of, and all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The promise, even in Isaiah chapter 6, is that God will rightly judge his people. But there will be a people who will remain. Not because of anything they have to offer, but because of their willingness to humble themselves, confess their sin, and turn to him. And he will set the captives free. And what you could never imagine from Isaiah chapter 6 is that freedom will come through the man Jesus Christ. Recovery from the blind, softening of hard hearts will come through the man Jesus Christ. So what should grace compel us to do? What should our experience of God's saving grace cause us to do with our lives? Well, it's to bring Him glory by proclaiming liberty to the captives. And brothers and sisters, if you're a believer, the message is simple. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning, the message is also simple for you. Trust in Jesus and be set free. Confess your sin to him and be set free. The worship team is going to come and lead us. And as they lead us, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. As we do that, I want to invite you, if you are a believer, if you have confessed your sin to God, if you have placed your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are invited to celebrate this supper with us this morning. In a moment, Robert Ward is going to come and he's going to lead us in our time together. And as you are ready, I would invite you to stand and make your way to one of the tables. And then you, as you make your way back to your seat, you can wait on Robert to lead us in taking the supper with one another. But before that, let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you are good and faithful to us. Thankful that we are, we are so very thankful that your word gives us your entire counsel, that you don't just give us one aspect of who you are devoid of who you also are. And so this morning, I pray that the reality of your graciousness and your justice would permeate through us, that we would understand that people around us, as long as they remain in their sin, they are perishing before us. And oh, Father, we pray that you would give us a heart to go to those people and to proclaim that there is liberty for those who are held captive by their sin, that there is release from the burden and the weight of their sin, if only they will confess and trust in Jesus. Father, embolden us to do this. And if there are any unbelievers amongst us this morning, we pray that you would be doing this in their heart even now, that you would be indwelling with the power of your Spirit in them, causing faith to rise up and trust and hope to rise up and repentance to rise up in their hearts, and that we might celebrate with them today their salvation. Oh, Father, do all of this for your glory and for the exaltation of your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.